You're listening to a podcast of This Positive Life, thebody.com's growing collection of first-person stories from people living with HIV. This is Erica Nelson reporting for The Body. Welcome to This Positive Life. I'm here today with Michael McCauley, a Chicago-based HIV-positive author, professor, and yoga instructor. Michael tested positive for HIV in 1996. Since then, he's been on a journey of discovery, trying to understand the ideal way people with HIV can lead healthy lives and how community, activism, and spirituality can contribute to that health and help stop the HIV epidemic. Michael traveled around the world talking with people who are positive and HIV advocates about their lives and their work, and he wrote a book about his travels last year called The After Death Room, Journey into Spiritual Activism. Michael, thank you for joining us on This Positive Life. Oh, thank you, Erica. Well, I'm really glad you could be here. Um, Before we start talking about your book and your current work, can you tell our readers and listeners about your personal history with HIV? Um, How did you find out you were positive? Well, um, I had been tested uh, a couple of different times before 1996. Uh, I had a very good friend of mine um, um, who um, kept asking me to get tested, uh, and uh, she um, sort of uh, convinced me that I needed to also go into therapy. Uh, So I I did those both at the same time, and uh, then I found out. What exactly happened? You you went in for a new test after going through this therapy? Where'd you go? Yeah, I went uh, to a therapist and we began talking about depression and addiction problems and uh, and also issues around my own sexuality. And I think after you know a, a couple of weeks, I realized that I needed to go get tested again and. Uh, uh, and so you know, I did, and uh, I, I'm very grateful to that friend of mine who pushed me to confront the issues of, of depression and addiction and the possibility of being uh, infected. So, because um, at that time, '96, you know, it, it was before the the um, cocktail drug had uh, come out. Uh, so I, I found out like three or four months before the cocktail was being used, and so. If I wouldn't have been tested, who, you know, who knows? You know, I may have, you know, gotten sicker and sicker. Right. Why did you think that you might have been at risk? Well, um, I hadn't really faced uh, my bisexual life, and so uh, people didn't know about my life, uh, my sexual life, and I knew that I was having you know, sex at different times when I was depressed and when I was either drunk or using various drugs and uh, whether or not I was always conscious of of safe sex practices were were probably not uh, something that... uh, uh, I was aware of, you know. I mean, I was I was trying to be aware, but I think in that kind of state of mind, uh, you you don't uh, you don't pay attention. Do you know? Have any idea, like specifically, how long you'd been living with HIV at that point? Do you think you'd been? You know, I think it might have been uh, a year and a half or or, or longer. So you have an idea of, of who you got it from, or not? I th- yeah, I do. Yes, I do, and. Um, we talk to each other. Um, I'm not, you know, absolutely sure, of course, but uh, he actually talked to me when he was at Cook County Hospital, and, and it was kind of a sad conversation. And uh, he was obviously uh, sick, and he, you know, he told me, and I said, "Yeah, I know." And uh, 
Um, and he, has, he subsequently died about six years ago. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Did you find out that he was positive before or after you yourself tested positive? No I, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. But, you know, I... I, I I should have paid attention to because he was having trouble with with addiction as well, and you know that was just part of the part of my life where I didn't I really didn't I didn't care. I mean I was uh, living for the nightlife, and um, I um, was very depressed too at the time, and I was trying to write, and uh, um, you know I I just didn't I didn't I didn't care. You know, I mean, I, I didn't go around not having safe sex. I just, in my mind, I thought, well, this this could easily happen, and, and it did. Do you think that these are common risk factors for bisexual men or for gay men? I think it's, you know, part of the culture of people feeling uncomfortable about their sexuality, uh, that they use substances to feel more comfortable. Uh, I think it's just a culture uh, also of, of the nightlife where people are partying and um, slowly their, you know, their awareness of their health is, is obviously uh, put on the back burner if, if they're using substances or drinking a lot. And then the possibility of STDs are just part of the lack of awareness of their body and people don't want to hear about it when you're at at a bar at two in the morning or you know if you've gone home with somebody I don't think people have conversations about their 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 past sexual lives and their health and under those circumstances uh, what did you do after you tested positive I went to a clinic on the near south side. I didn't want to go to the clinic in my neighborhood, of course, like many people. I, you know, was very nervous about people knowing, and uh, even though, you know, how would anyone know if I went to a, a clinic on the north side? But I, you know, it was just part of the the, the fear, you know, and uh, mm -hmm. this is something that people are doing all the time is they go to another city or, you know, they go to some other part of the city. So I did that, and um, I didn't, you know, I didn't think I would be positive and I was and uh, I was then sort of numb I think for about two days I you know, I didn't talk to anybody for about five days uh, and uh, finally I told a very good friend of mine and and slowly I began to sort of deal with it but uh, I was I was very troubled suicidal uh, you know uh, People at the office were trying to tell me to do different things. I have no idea what they actually said to me. You know, I just was in my own zone. And, um, you know, I think depression is a real serious problem with um, bisexual and gay men. Uh, and um, so once they do face HIV, there is this undercurrent of their own past history that they wrestle with and, uh, you know, um, I just wonder about how how well that's being dealt with. Yeah, no, I think so. you're completely right. I mean, I think it's a risk factor for um, for women as well. Yeah, no, that's it's for everybody. I think once they have the they they confront the HIV and or it confronts them, they then have to face this entire sort of history of of you know various 
sexual practices and uh, and, and an addiction, addiction problem. I don't think anybody grows up going, hey, I want to be uh, addicted to some substance or I want to have unsafe sex or I want to be having several partners. I don't think anybody, you know, sets out to do that. But over time, you know, the way in which we respond to our needs, our sexual needs, our intimacy, uh, our need to, you know, to try to change our lives, uh, we sometimes begin to sort of fall into patterns and you know, various substances and even sex as a substance or as an addiction can start to take over. And so once the HIV, you know, we have to confront that. We, we confront this whole history. So I think people wanted to change. They want to try to find a way to make better choices. They want better healthy partners, but, you know, suddenly, you know, they, they're, they're just, they feel sort of uh, overwhelmed with their life. And so, anyway, I, I'm just worried about how people face the whole totality of their psychological and spiritual sort of question once they do confront HIV infection. I think there are a lot of people that they get diagnosed and they go through, um, they deal with all of those issues and they go through a, a self-revelation process. Mm-hmm. And my understanding is that that's kind of what you went through. How, how did you process it? It did. And I, uh, fortunately, at the time, I was doing a lot of yoga. I mean, I was battling depression and addiction things, but I was doing yoga and I, I had been doing yoga for for a while. And, uh, and so I, you know, had periods of pretty deep depression and I had to tell people, women I dated, men, my parents, uh, family, you know, step by step I started telling people and at the same time I was actually doing a one-person show. It was just quite, you know, so much was going on in my life at the time. But um, I just knew that uh, I had to hold on to this yoga practice because it was a physical practice and it gave me a way to just sort of have a tangible way to respond and not a, not an intellectual way you know i didn't want to be told what to do or even therapy you know talk therapy was i don't i don't want to talk about it i want to actually physically do something and i think yoga is a physical practice the meditation and the poses the breathing exercises i felt like i i was doing something to you know, help my body deal with the infection and uh, embrace my body to, rather than to, feel, to have this feeling of uh, that that I had caused this myself, which I did. But I, I think that self-loathing and that self-hatred is so powerful for for us when we're, we face uh, HIV infection because of various practices and behaviors. That that that's why I mean about the depression kicks in people. You know, feel so so much self-loathing at that point, and thank God I I did work with the yoga because that made me start building myself back up. What what advice would you give to someone who has just found out that they're positive? Well, I would first find those people that are very close to them that they you know dearly love and 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 trust. Uh, and I would tell them that they need their help. I think the idea of asking for help can can be a, uh, a release of the sense of you're you know living with this alone. And but I would be wary of people that you you sense that uh, um, are not close to you because sometimes we feel like we have to go talk to a family member or something like that. And I think it's better to talk to your dear you know and very close friends uh, and then. 
uh, I think it's a great opportunity to begin to sort of try something new in your life that may have something to do with your health, um, whether it is yoga or tai chi or meditation or, or it is another spiritual sort of practice. I think it can be a really a good time to seek that out. To find self-compassion is really, really important because you, you need to to find your strength and to be very, very compassionate with yourself first mm-hmm. and then you know, bring those tradition. people around you who can help solidify that, that compassion. Sort of forgiving yourself and then yes, finding Yes, forgiving yourself because you need to be strong and you need to move uh, with the body that you have now and you need to sort of embrace it and, and help it uh, slowly um, heal. And you have to heal yourself, and that's the point of yoga. I mean, it, yes, it's great to have the medications and, and, and the doctors, and, but I think it has to be you who has to feel like you are the single most important part of your, your recovery and your healing. It, it's you. It's not the drugs or it's not a special doctor. It's you. Um, shifting gears just a bit. Sure. Um in your book, you talk about growing up in a racially mixed neighborhood in Indiana and um, the role that that played in your sexuality and um, growing into a sexual adult. Can you speak to that a little bit? It's a very complicated uh, um, background, but I mean, I think growing up in kind of a small working class town with African American people who I went to school with from the early age, I mean, there there was just you know, everyone lived in the same sort of neighborhood, and I played. I was a big athlete. My dad was a coach, and I, I was just always an athlete. So I was around a lot of African American men all the time, and um, there was a kind of um, closeness that I had uh, because uh, I felt around any athlete, but particularly African American men, I, I felt a sense that they had a. a uh, an awareness about their body that was different than uh, mine and, and other, I think, white Americans. And so I I sense a kind of uh, um, a power about the, one's body and, and, and how it can be a kind of a, a sacred object in a certain way. And I think people who do sense that their body has power, whether they're an athlete or it doesn't matter, but uh, that attitude about the body was uh, was very attractive to me, and so I, I, in some sense, I think was the beginning of my understanding of of my own bisexual life. And I also noticed with African American men that they had a kind of rebellious spirit. This was in the '60s, um, and even young men, but they had a sense that they were not going to be pushed down by white culture and. And I, I saw them as a kind of a model to not let the ideas and the mores of a dominant culture or a way of, you know, masculine white culture uh, tell me that I, you know, was somehow uh, inferior. And I think their energy and their kind of spirit was something that uh, I looked to as a, as a way to, to understand that I could live with my, in my sexual life. Is that, is yeah, no, that's, 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 I think it's more eloquently stated, or it seems in the, in in my book. 
No, I think that was a, I think that was a very eloquent response. I, I just, I find it um, really interesting. You had relationships with men and women and with black folks and white folks. And you, you talk a lot in your book about uh, white privilege and gender roles and, um, and having an awareness of those things. And I, I think that's really important. <laughs> you also talk about struggling even into your adulthood to come to terms with your bisexual identity. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. And, how how did that work out? I mean, it sounds to me like it was it was really after your it's HIV still working diagnosis. Now. <laughs> still working on it. Um, it sounds to me like it was really almost after your HIV diagnosis. Yeah, really it was. It was. To... Yeah, yeah. It was. I, I I didn't want to face it. I mean, I think some people knew, um, uh, but uh, I didn't. You know, actively sort of. You know open myself up to to um, my sexual life and so and I think that can be a problem with a lot of bisexuality and I, th- I think it's uh, I mean I know it's a problem because I think people want to sustain their identity as someone who's attracted to both sexes and because unfortunately our culture has sort of dealt with homosexuality in, a, in such a stigmatizing way that we now feel still that we have to make this choice between whether we're straight or whether we're gay. And I think that it's, sexuality is so much more complicated. It's so much more fluid. It changes over time. It changes with different periods of our lives because of uh, things that we're interested in, uh, groups of people that we find ourselves uh, associated with, uh, parts of the country in which we might live in, our race, our gender. I mean, all these factors sort of play in, and I think everybody has a different formula as to how their desire works. And um, I just think that the easy answer of saying, well, you're gay or you're straight is just, you know, I, I think that's just so limiting to how we we understand ourselves as human beings and um i think a lot of people are scared when they feel that they have this attraction to both sexes that they either have to make a choice and then they then they do because they are very strongly connected to uh, uh their uh, a partner of the same sex and therefore they they feel like they they can't uh have attractions to the the opposite sex any longer or they feel that you know they have to hold back then so they 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 keep keep themselves in the closet because even being bisexual can be something that that people uh, are denigrated for and so right. um therefore they they don't they don't come out and then they can their behavior can be this sort of schizophrenic behavior which was mine and then you can not be fully honest with with people and with yourself and then you can be in situations where you are you know, using drugs and alcohol in order to sort of allow your your desires to come out and and that's still going on so much and it's it's sad that in 2007 we can't really understand bisexuality and and for younger people too uh to be able to give them better models as to how this works you talk a lot in the in, in the book about living between the the straight and gay world right and i mean you alluded to this just now but i i think that sometimes bisexual folks can have kind of a fragile position in um, the GLBT community. Have oh, you, yeah. Have you found I mean, that? Yeah, well, what's the B stand for? I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, you know, all the, all the LGBT stuff came in the 70s when I think there was a more f- uh, fluid understanding of sexuality. It was pre-HIV. So 
people felt that they were, you know, exploring or whatever they were doing. But there were a lot of people that that's yes, they felt that they were bisexual. And then everything shut down after AIDS, and uh, and then rightfully so, people became very suspicious of people who couldn't commit themselves or said that they couldn't commit themselves, or uh, and uh, and then of course I think there are people who are infecting people because they're not, you know, they're not they're not out. But oftentimes people are not out because they are stigmatized so quickly and they're forced to be into two different camps and they don't want to do that. I think in the African-American community and Latino community, this is a real problem. And, you know, it's just not addressed very, very effectively, you know, and uh, you go to other countries and there's a lot more fluidity. What is it like um, being a bisexual man in the midst of this epidemic? Do you think that you have a unique um, perspective compared to, say, you know, the gay community battling with HIV and, you know, the straight community battling with HIV? You sort of bridge both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I have a very yeah, a very unique position indeed because I, when I speak at colleges, I, I you know, I, I, I relish openly telling them in the very first, you know, two sentences that I'm bisexual and I've dealt with addiction problems and I'm HIV positive and I'm a yoga teacher and I'm very interested in the development of my spiritual life. And, and they're always like, what did he say? Uh, and I, I like to kind of push the, you know, the buttons on both straight and gay people who would like to, you know, to, to kind of, uh, stereotype people. They, and, and, and because people can't quite read me, I, you know, will tell them about who I really am and, and then it makes them a little bit uncomfortable. But um, I think it's, it's part of my mission uh, to sort of try to, like, break the stereotypes and get people to, you know, see each other for, you know, their their, their, their humanness That's and terrific. their personality and their, their fullness um, and not just as an identity. Uh, shifting gears again, you touched a little bit earlier on uh, your yoga practice and talked a little bit about that. Um, can you tell me, what? when did you first start doing yoga? What kind of yoga do you do? Well, I, did, I started doing yoga when I was studying acting in college a long time ago, um, and it was just regular hatha yoga. It's not, you know, uh, the foundation of, of most yoga practices. And then I began doing Ashtanga yoga. I went to India uh, and studied with uh, a, a a very powerful guru, Patabi Joyce, uh, and then I also worked with different teachers, um, Yingar teachers, and John Friend, and and Richard Freeman, and, and just a lot of different people who are very good teachers in the United States. And so I've sort of developed my own sort of practice, and, and, and you know I've been influenced by a lot of people. So I wouldn't say I'm you know doing any certain type now, but I kind of pay attention to my body and what it needs to do. And if I need to do more meditation one day or do, you know, more back bending or um, various types of poses. I mean, there's certain poses that a lot of uh, senior teachers feel that are helpful for people with immune system problems. And, and those poses are a lot of twists, a lot of poses where your body's being twisted Mm-hmm. Uh, because we are we're taking medications, many of us, and we can try to sort of massage the liver and the spleen and the kidneys because they're doing all this flushing out of the medication. So sometimes when you do these twists, we kind of squeeze the the torso such so that. 
we can, you know, try to bring in fresh blood to those organs, and that that's helpful. And also, you know, standing on your head and hand balances, and anytime your head is below your heart, you're doing what's called an inversion, and so the blood is coming, you know, it's reversed, so it's coming down towards your head, and so that can stimulate your pituitary gland, which is sort of, you know, where your third eye is, you know, kind of in between your two eyes, and that that can release hormones to help stimulate your immune system. So, hmm. and I don't know if that's scientifically proven per se, but a lot of people have said that, that, that you know, that that's helpful, those, mm-hmm. those poses are helpful. Yeah. But just general yoga is helpful because you're maintaining your physical health and your uh, immune system functions better when you're the stress is, re- is, is released and your circulation's increased. Right. And that's just very basic, you know. So if you walk and you swim and all those things can be very helpful. How does all of this relate to your HIV activism? Well, I mean, it's just sort of, I think the number one thing is that I want people to sort of take responsibility for their own health. And I think yoga, the foundation of yoga is to recognize that you, your body's sacred and that you have to, to maintain it and you have to sort of uh, cultivate awarenesses of, of intelligence, of, of emotional intelligence, spiritual intelligence, physical intelligence in order to maintain your health, in order to understand your your role here in this universe. And so I think your health is the beginning. And uh, I think that that is a spiritual act when you begin to recognize that your body is something that is divine. Uh, And uh, so I speak about that, but I also speak about how a spiritual practice uh, begins to develop um, your your sort of ethical understanding uh, of, of how the world works and you cultivate the practice of compassion, and I think a lot of different spiritual traditions do that. Christianity, Buddhism, Judaism, all of the major religions, Islam, are founded on a sense of human uh, compassion as a, as, a, as, a, as a deeply important part of how we can survive and how we can understand this universe. Mm-hmm. My book is about going to speak to people around the world who mm-hmm. have dealt with a lot more difficult problems than me, uh, people who do not have HIV drugs in South Africa and India and elsewhere, and and then people who I saw who struggled so much, and then they had become these activists in their communities. Uh, these people are very powerful people, and whether they align themselves to various you know, tradition, you know, religious tradition or not, whether they're Marxist, it didn't matter to me. I, I just saw people who recognized human dignity as a, as, a, as a reason to maintain their own health and they're helping others. And that's what I saw as, as, as a spiritual type of activism. And uh, I mean, it's been around a long time. It's nothing new, you know. I mean, I think people in ACT UP in the Twenty years ago, were were so moved by the the, the deaths of their friends and and what was happening that they wanted to put themselves out there in order to make it possible that other people could live. And I think that's a profoundly a spiritual act, as they think of others uh, before themselves. Um, and uh, I just think that we need more of that. 
So that's how you would define spiritual activism, is putting others before yourself as you approach fighting the epidemic. That's one aspect of it, indeed. Uh, I think also it is kind of understanding that, that you almost need more than political change. I mean, we're living now with global warming, and, you know, we have to act, you know, and we have to sort of maybe change the way in which we understand our everyday choices about what we think we need and what we um, don't need. And we just can't sort of like, well, I need to vote for this figure or or, 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 or do an AIDS walk, and that that's going to be enough. I mean, it's, you have to change your own life, and you, you may have to do with less. And you may have to spend more time developing a kind of an awareness of your spiritual life that takes time to do. You just don't have a nice little workshop and then suddenly you have an awareness. Mm. You have to begin to make commitments to how to develop an awareness of this, you know, this, this idea of compassion. And it takes, it takes time. Yeah. And you found that, that that kind of compassion and commitment and sacrifice was at the heart of the activism you were seeing when you started the trip to do your research exactly. for your book. And like I say, I don't. it wasn't necessarily connected to a certain religion. Sometimes it was. I met, you know, African-American women here in Chicago. I, I, you know, they were very deeply, you know, moved by their Christian faith, and they were doing wonderful things, opening up their homes. To other people, I, you know, women in in South Africa, same thing. Open, you know, HIV positive, open up their house to other women. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Buddhist monk in Thailand who was developing a hospice program for like only like fifteen people because he was going to teach other dying people how to to help each other as they were dying. And he he saw that as part of his practice as a Buddhist monk. He left the monastery and started doing the hospice. And I just saw things like that all over. And, you know, they didn't need to be told that they were doing wonderful things. They, you know, they didn't have that much money. They just sensed that they had to do this. You know what I mean? It was kind of beyond just making sure that they got the Ryan White funds. And You know what I mean? It just, if that came, fine. But they had a different sense of why they were doing it. Um, How did you first get wind of all these people around the world who were doing this kind of work? I mean, what what first prompted you to say, you know, hey, I want to sell all my possessions and go travel and interview everyone and talk to all these incredible people? I mean, how did this start? Well, it's just organically as every sort of journey starts. I mean, I went to South Africa and uh, to the AIDS conference there, and uh, I, I was teaching a workshop on yoga, and I, I thought so. I thought this would be really good and interesting. I also thought it would be interesting to write about it. So I had this kind of, it was very selfish in a way, you know. Uh, I mean, it was good that I was going to, you know, teach yoga to people. But at the workshop, I was really confronted because people just wanted me to stay and teach. That's all they wanted me to do, just come to, you know, our community group in Soweto and come here to Cape Town. And This is so good. This is so wonderful yoga. So do it. And I, I said, well, you know, I'm just a workshop guy. I'm not supposed to sort of come and do it. And I think that really hit me very deeply, how how desperate people were for people to actually do what they say they're going to do. 
you know, just talk was so cheap. And that's why politics and things, sometimes I'm just tired of people talking about it. Uh, so I came back and came back to Chicago and I kept thinking about it. And, and some of these young women wrote me little letters and saying, you know, oh, I'm breathing and thank you for the workshop, even though I didn't even, they weren't trying to make me feel bad. They just simply said, oh, this would be really helpful. Could we have, could you help us do this? And I couldn't. And I, I, I you know, I was a deep, uh, question as to as a spiritual question: Why can't I help? Uh, well, for one, I you know worried about my health insurance and all those things. But even even still, I, I thought you know you, you you should be able to to try. And so I went, I got some credit cards, and you know, and my parents gave me you know a thousand dollars, and I sold you know most all my furniture and took a leave of absence, and then I decided to go to India. I didn't even really know that many people there, but. People in South Africa told me about some different organizations in India. And so basically from country to country, people act, the worldwide AIDS network is vast. And I would just go and I said, well, who do you know? Who should I talk to in Chennai or wherever I went? And I said, oh, you got to talk to this woman, this social worker. And, oh, and over here. And then I would talk to one social worker and you, oh, you got to go talk to this doctor. And I'd talk to the doctor and I'd find out he was HIV positive. And, you know, just stories like that would just start floating into my life and and then the, the activists in India said oh well I said well, I'm going to Thailand next they go oh you'll have to meet with these people who work for the sex workers in Bangkok and you know I went and talked to them and then they had a bunch of more people so it was word of mouth and I was led you know from country to country by AIDS activists mm. it's a beautiful story in itself yeah yeah. Did, did you know when you started traveling that you were going to make a book out of all your conversations? You know, I, I just thought that I would write different articles maybe. I also wanted maybe to explore this spiritual question. I mean, I thought I might spend some time in a ashram in India. I thought I might spend time in a Buddhist monastery in Thailand. And I, you know, I, I was going for kind of a spiritual sort of quest in a way, but I knew that it had, had to go through speaking with activists who were AIDS activists. So I wanted to write about them and in the process, uh, meditate on just exactly how I was going to live now with this disease. Uh, and, and their stories were so, you know, amazing, Erica, that I just felt like you've got to tell these stories, you know, and there was, you know, suddenly I just said, okay, well, this is, this is a book, you know, and and then I realized that when I came back to Chicago, I said, well, you have to include all the people who are doing all this amazing stuff here, too, which I'd ignored. I mean, I, I never paid attention to activism once I'd been infected, not until 2001 when I came back from South Africa and uh, came back from Asia did I pay attention to the activism in the United States, and I found the same type of stuff going on here. Yeah. And um, so, you know, and I had ideas of going to Brazil and Russia and all these other places to make sure I went to all the continents. But friends of mine who were writers said, oh, wait, wait, you already have way too much information already. And I did. I had way too much. So then I'd start writing it up. Well, And all of this started with the, what, the 2000 International AIDS Conference in, yes. in South Africa? Mm-hmm. So it took you a while to finish the book. It took six years. Is that right? Well, yeah, I did. I went to Asia in 2001 and then came back to Chicago and then went to um, Senegal in 2001 and, or 2002. So I was kind of traveling and in between, for a year and a half. Mm, okay. Um, 
on my, you know, credit cards. Oh, dear. And then I started teaching again. I started writing, and the teaching was so much that I just stopped teaching and get, you know, go further into debt and finish the book and, you know. Yeah, it takes a long time to write a book. Yeah, for sure. This is probably a really difficult question, but who was the most inspiring person you met in your travels and why? Well, there was a lot there was a lot of people. I, I think this woman in India, uh, her name was P. Kasava. Uh this little Indian woman, she was like four foot two or something and and she's taller than that. I know. But but I went to see her and she didn't speak that much English because, and I didn't speak, you know, of course, Hindi. And so she, she had a translator. And, and this woman basically had been, you know, kicked out of her home with her children um, because her husband infected her. And, of course, her family thought she was the one who infected her husband, of course. And she, she didn't. And, um, you know, she was sick. And uh, when I saw her, she had, you know, all kinds of skin problems. And she was coughing all the way through a two-hour interview. But this woman had started a small HIV-positive group for women, and she she broke off from the you know HIV-positive network, which was you know men and women. But she wanted, and her friends wanted something just for women, because they felt uncomfortable with the men. And they basically got together to sort of care for their children and to care for each other, because they had been all sort of kicked out of their families and. I was just amazed with the the spirit. She just had this powerful spirit. She's a tiny little body, sickly, and she talked with such, you know, intensity about her story and she was so excited that I wanted to, you know, to to hear it, you know, and write it down because I was this journalist from America and of course because she knew I was HIV positive too, she somehow really wanted me to know all this and and now, of course, uh, you know, Positive Women Network of Southern India has like 25 satellite organizations because of her and this small group of people that started the first women's organizations in India. And wow. She just was this woman who who was kicked out and said, okay, you've pushed me to the margins of society and therefore all the rules that I'm supposed to live by don't work anymore for me, so I'm going to break the rules and say we're going to get together and care for each other, and and I'm going to get become political even though I'm, you know, poor and I'm not that well educated, and you know she just broke the barriers. Yeah. You know, and I, and, and she didn't have this idea of herself as being this egomaniac type person either. You know, she just this is what she had to do. And I've emailed her a few times, and you know, I've, and I've done some benefits for her with different yoga studios and things, and um, you know, I send the money back to her organization. So that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds like you you just learned a lot from a lot of different people. Oh um, yeah, I did. Yeah, and I think a lot of people made me deal with my own sexual issues. Some sex workers in India, male sex workers. You know, I, I, there's an organization called Nas Foundation uh, that work with men on the streets in South Asia, and I visited them, and, and this organization was so warm, and all these young men were so wonderful, and they kept asking me, you know, about, you know, my sex life and all this, and, and finally I did this, you know, talk, because they wanted to ask about what happened to me and how I, you know, contracted HIV, and they started asking me about my sexual life, and they were just so upfront about their sexual life and the organization was very upfront about how to protect people on the streets and how to, to 
because these young men were peer educators, so they went out and trained other sex workers on the streets and in the slums. It's awful sort of areas where they go, and I went out with them, you know. They trained them about safe sex? Yes. And they, t- and they, they invite their, uh, the, you know, their clients or other people that they, you know, other male sex workers to this organization and train them to, you know, to how to, you know, to, to have safe sex and, and, uh, and to how to be, you know, how to protect themselves and how to, you know, pay attention to, and, and they also get some educational development and I taught a little yoga workshop it's in the book with them and they were so sweet but they were they made me deal with my sexual I mean they wanted to why why do you feel uncomfortable about your sexuality you know they would ask and <laughs> it was just so sweet because they were so they cared about me you know they cared about you know my whole self uh, and uh, I several places people demanded that I speak very honestly about my own depression and my own spiritual struggles and because they they want they you know they wanted me to you know to be better too i mean right. doctors in india i remember i was interviewing them and and they said have you eaten today and you know they would like oh you've got to go eat you know we don't want you to talk to us until you've eaten and stuff like that <laughs> they were just you know they cared about me you know they didn't always care about you know all these issues all the time why do you think that your book is important for people living with HIV, uh, say, in the United States? Well, I think it's important for everybody because I think I'm raising the issues of spiritual activism in a time when our country is tired of politics as it is. And uh, you watch people are going to start talking more and more about, you know, trying to find ways to sort of get communities to move beyond the bickering and the and the finger pointing and things like that and uh but I think people who are living with HIV um I think it's a long-term spiritual struggle and you know sometimes people think well I dealt with that 5 years ago or I've been HIV for 10 years or whatever but it's it's always uh, there and uh, the way in which we identify ourselves as as victims or, or if we're ill or something like that 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 has to change and has to change, you know, uh, throughout our life, you know, it's something we're always going to be living with. And so I think this type of a book is trying to get people to think about, sure, getting out and maybe trying to help others, but also trying to understand that one's body has to be, has to be protected and has to be given uh, a lot of compassion so that we can, you know, listen to it and to see what we need to do in order to be healthy, in order to be good partners, uh, good parents, good uh, good friends, good workers, whatever. And, and that's something that just doesn't end. You just can't wrestle with the, the issue. You know, I think sometimes people are HIV and they, they, they do all kinds of changes, which is great. And then, you know, that kind of, that period is over and then they kind of slide back and the impetus to, to, to go deeper into their who they are as a spiritual being kind of fades. And so I, I, I think the book might say, keep going on some of those things that, that you learn once you've faced uh, your HIV uh, infection and, and to explore deeper who you are and how you can help others and how, how you can you know, be more compassionate with yourself. Well, now that the book is out and out there in the world, um, 
what kind of what other kinds of work are you doing? I know you're teaching creative writing classes at the university level, and you're teaching yoga. Uh, how how is that going? Um, how are you incorporating well, what you've it, it's it's been very exciting in the in the going around the country and talking about the book because I've been going to colleges and giving talks, and uh, I think right now in colleges, whether people are dealing with sexual issues or whatever they're they're dealing with, I think students want to hear. Uh, people talk very candidly about politics and ethics and spirituality and, and sexual issues. We think that technology is going to solve everything, and we still have, we're still human beings, they're flesh and blood, and we need to you know to be healthy and we need to pay attention to our to our bodies and really practice listening to our bodies. And I, and I so I, I'm feeling that I want to do more of that, working with young people with. With their creativity, I'm beginning to teach yoga and creative writing together, and I'm doing some workshops on that. And I, I think that's really helpful to kind of try to give space to young people to explore their creative life uh, through their body and through their understanding of their own past. Do you think that, that this kind of teaching has a role in, in HIV prevention? Oh, I, completely, because I think... Uh, there's so much, uh, you know, um, fear uh, of being oneself. Whether you, you're not playing, you're, you're not, you don't fit in because your body doesn't look the right way, or, or your parents have been telling you that you need to, you know, go and and live a certain kind of lifestyle and you don't want to, and and then I think it's, uh, you know, it's it's easy for young people to kind of fall into patterns of self-abuse and um, it's hip to be kind of, you know, sort of sarcastic about things and and really, you know, uh, I, I sense in my writing classes that there's a lot of desperate need to, you know, to deal with issues of, of abuse and uh, addiction and, and fear about their body and, and uh, I just know that that's one area in which STDs, you know, often come out of totally denying the body, and then suddenly there's self-destructive behaviors that are being practiced, and suddenly people get HIV or they get other illnesses, uh, and this this can be prevented if you if you spend time in high school or in or in early part of college or wherever, you know, really trying to get people to sort of you know live with their body just like in other areas of education you give people skills mm-hmm. and this is something that you know 13 year olds need to be working with you know and it's always interesting to me I go to colleges and talk I say well how much sexual education have you had and it's still this minuscule amount mm-hmm. and it seems to me that you know, health education is really critical right now mm-hmm. and when I mean health I mean spiritual health physical health, emotional health, mental health, all of them together and really working at it and learning and doing creative things in order to really to give students, you know, the powers and the skills to be able to handle emotional stress that are that is hitting them every day. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if I can ask, uh, what has your own health been like since your diagnosis? Oh, well, I mean, I'm feeling physically... Great, I you know I do my yoga practice and I I swim and work out and I now have a bike. I don't 
drive anymore, so I'm a big biker. And um, but my mental health is up and down. I still wrestle with depression. I I uh, I think it comes with the kind of schizophrenia of uh, being an adjunct instructor and and worrying about my health insurance and uh, not getting paid and. Uh, you know, going deeply in debt for this book and, you know, putting myself out there and it's a struggle. Uh, and, uh, I, I think anytime you deal with difficult things in your life and you're open with them to others, uh, you better be prepared to be able to handle the kind of, uh, responses that you can get, you know, that are subtle and psychological and, and, and the road that you have to go is not an easy one. And, uh, so I've I've cut a, kind of a deep road uh, mm. to follow, uh, and sometimes I'm not as healthy as far as spending you know time to you know uh, relax because I'm feeling that there's so much work to be done. One a couple more questions about sure. your own health. Um, what what meds are you taking now? Oh God, I try to forget them. Um, Coletra and Truvada. Okay. And that regimen's working well for you? It's fine. It's doing wonders. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything else you take? I mean, you've talked obviously about yoga and exercise. Do you do any juicing or vitamins or anything like that? I eat no red meat. I am very conscious of my diet. Um, I have a I have a, a sort of high-powered smoothie every day with uh, spirulina and uh, protein and, and juices. You know, I just try to, to, you know, be balanced and not eat too much of anything and uh, drink drink a lot of juices and fluids. Okay, can I ask, what is your CD4 count in your viral load? Oh, it's um, uh, undetectable and like five five fifty or something. That's terrific. Oh yeah, it's very good. Wonderful. Yeah, but I think the medical situation is not good. I, I think. You know, it, it's a factory, and I'm very, you know I'm nervous about it because I, I at times I, I mean my doctor senses that I'm doing all these things and she knows I'm all this does all the yoga and all this, but I think that um, it'd be nice if there were more uh, complementary treatments that were cheaper. I would I would use more uh, massage and acupuncture if it was available. I mean, in a few months, uh, I'm, I'm right now on Cobra because I'm you know an adjunct faculty member, and uh, the state of Illinois pays for half of my health insurance because of my income is 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 a, at a certain level that the state will pick up half of my health insurance. And in three months, I don't know what's going to happen. To be frank, I, I either have to find new health insurance or uh, use one of the state programs in Illinois. And this is a real problem, the kind of anxiety about insurance yeah, and not having more complementary treatments for people. It's a real serious problem. And, you know, and how easy it is to get, you know, get to your doctor and, and do they have time for you and, you know what I mean? And yeah, that's scary. It is scary. And I think there's a lot of good programs uh, in certain parts of cities and other parts of cities, they're up there. So, you you know, I'm sure in New York City, I mean, it's hard to go on a train for three hours to go see somebody who does provide acupuncture. You know, I mean, it's, do you have five hours to do that? 
Let me ask you a few questions about um, disclosure and relationships. You talked a little bit about your um, your sisters and your parents. What was it like disclosing with them? Have they been really supportive? Are you are you out? Oh, they've everybody? been great. Yeah, my sis- my sisters are were the first of the group that I first told, and they were you know they just have always been really helpful. Um, you know, on, on a psychological level, you know, just making sure that you know that they that 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 they would be there for me and all those kinds of things and financial support if I needed it and all that. And my parents as well. I mean, I wrote this book. It's a very frank book. I talk about issues of addiction in my own family and um, depression in my own family and, and different other things. And, and, and it was difficult initially for my parents to think, oh, he's going to write this book about his sexual life and about our family and all these things. But I think they have been very supportive and understand the sort of the totality of how, you know, one's sexual life, one's uh, one's health is connected to their, to one's family. And by telling a story that it involves, you know, entire family history, um, it it shows you that, that health is something that affects everybody. So one member of a family's health affects everybody's, and, mm. and just like you know, members of a community. And this is why I'm so troubled about the way in which we don't pay attention to people who are and uh, who are poor and don't have access to health care, whether it's the United States or other countries, because it affects everybody. How do you decide whether to disclose your HIV status to someone? You know, I've had a lot of practice with it now uh, because I go up in front of groups of people. When I went around the world, I, I, you know, it was always sort of a dramatic moment. Do I tell this person or not? Am I the American journalist or am I the HIV-positive person who happens to be writing um, something about HIV? You know, I sense who can handle it uh, and who will be troubled by it, and I kind of have a feeling about people and um particularly if I'm not going to be around them you know I don't need to burden them with this sometimes because I'm just having a small conversation but because I it's about the book that I've written and people will say well, what are you writing about or you know I I tend to like tell everything now so right. I'm like at times just a little bit too outspoken probably I can't help. I just don't want to not tell people what my book's about, and yeah. so out it comes. What What's your best and uh, and also worst disclosure responses that you've gotten from people? You know, I think the best response is when people say, "Oh yeah, my sister's HIV," or they just they shrug their shoulders and say, "Yeah, so what?" I mean, they just you know, life goes on and we all struggle, and I think that's always reminds me of everybody's wrestling with all kinds of things and you know when we get all this anxiety you kind of see that people deal with diabetes and they cancer and this and that and HIV and you know we're 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 all you know we're all fragile human beings uh so i i like that when people sort of do the shrug of the shoulders and then tell you about their own stories um uh but the worst you know one of the things that bothers me is when people are are so 
hyperbolic about my own health, you know, because of course I practice yoga and stuff, but they really are over-exaggerate how good I seem and stuff like that. I, I'm really troubled by that because basically when you when you present yourself as somebody that's HIV positive and open and out and, and, and de- doing yoga and all these things, people are nervous about their own sexual life and about their mm. own inner problem. How has your sex life changed since you tested positive? Well, I'm, you know, I think in some ways, you know, it's obviously difficult to have a a sexual life that doesn't have this this uh, burden of people being anxious about being infected from you. Uh, and I would be lying if I said it would, hadn't affected it. It's affected it deeply. I mean, I've had a relationship with women who can't really continue because it's too terrifying to them. Um, not only the HIV factor, but the bisexuality. Uh, again, going back to the bisexual sort of image, like this person can't really sustain a relationship. They're, they may be interested in a man while, while they're with me or vice versa. As if bisexual people can't be committed to one partner. I've never had a, a you know relationship with one person and on the, on the side had a relationship with somebody else of the opposite sex. Mm-hmm. But there is that sense that that's what people that one person can't satisfy the sexual life of of, of the other sex or something like that. And I think that's just a total myth. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, I, I I tell people directly, and that in a way is, is is really good because I think you are very upfront about your life, and that makes them very upfront. You know, you're not, you know, beating around the bush about all kinds of issues. And I think that can be a good, healthy way to start relationships. On the other hand, people reject you. Yeah. And uh, that that angers me because I know that people are just not facing themselves. And uh, that, to me, is kind of a double standard. But, you know, I've learned to kind of not you know, get too bent out of shape about it. What comes next? Um, you know, what are your future plans? More books, more traveling? Um, you've got a, a lot Well, I'd like on. to get stabilize myself financially somehow. Um, and I, I want to continue to go and talk about this book and about issues about sexual health related to spiritual health and related to physical health. I'm very interested, as I've mentioned before, with teaching yoga and creative writing and, uh, you know, using that is a way to kind of talk about how paying attention to the body can be a way into understanding ways in which to change yourself politically and spiritually in the world. And I just think that that's where we need to go these days is to understand that the health needs are not just uh, about physical sort of maintenance. It's about life change. And that may mean taking action about you know, how many cars do we allow in cities and do we begin to bike more and what kind of fuels we use and how do we live in a a community and how much time that we can spend with families and and do we have an an economic system where people don't have to work 75 hours a week and what's what's that all about to keep working, working, working and buying, buying, buying and, you know, I think our society is changing and it has to change. And uh, with that, we need to bring this to a close. You can read an excerpt of Michael's book on our website and um, please do. Michael, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you too, Erica.
for all your work and all the good work that the body's been doing. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice, should not be considered substitutes for professional services, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebody.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us. Thanks for listening to This Positive Life. For more podcasts and other first-person stories, please visit us online at thebody.com. If you'd like to share your story, please email us at podcast at thebody.com. Thank you.